Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to this uh, special evening event uh, co-hosted by the Grattan Institute and the Australian National University Energy Change Institute. My name is Ken Baldwin. I'm the director of the Energy Change Institute at the ANU, and it's my pleasure to uh, open the proceedings this evening. Uh, before we commence, uh, let me just start by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Ngunnawal people, and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. So tonight, uh, we will be looking at Australia's prospects for a credible energy and climate change policy, question mark. And we uh, will uh, have a general discussion around this topic with our expert panel here this evening uh, to just give you an idea of how we'd like to uh, run the proceedings. Uh, the panel members will present their perspective for around about 10 minutes. Uh, we'll then have a bit of a discussion amongst the panel members following on from their commentary on uh, the other perspectives. And we'll then open the uh, question and answer session to general questions from the audience and then conclude around 7.15. So uh, now I'd like to introduce uh, the members of the panel. We have a distinguished group this evening. Uh, first of all, on uh, my far left, your far right, uh, is Professor Warwick McKibben. Warwick uh, is the Vice-Chancellor's Chair in Public Policy and Director of the Centre for Applied Macroeconomic Analysis at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Uh, he has a long uh, list of uh, distinguished uh, appointments and achievements. Uh, he was awarded the Order of Australia in 2016, uh, and he was awarded the Centenary Medal in 2003. So uh, Warwick is an economist, uh, who uh, has uh, a number of uh, senior roles and is a former uh, member of the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, next to Warwick is Jessica Wilson, who is the Director of Energy and Climate Change at the Business Council of Australia. Uh, she is a recent uh, member of the Business Council Executive, uh, having joined in about uh, this time last year, uh, and is responsible for energy and climate change policy for the BCA. Uh, before that, uh, she was advisor to the former Minister for the Environment and Energy, Josh Frydenberg, uh, and uh, she uh, comes uh, to us this evening with a long uh, experience uh, in, uh, in uh, the policy area uh, from uh, a background in, in law uh, originally. And then uh, finally, my uh, uh, co-sponsor this evening, Tony Wood, from the Grattan Institute. Tony, of course, is very well known uh, to most people who follow energy policy in Australia. Uh, he has been uh, working in the Grattan Institute uh, since uh, 2011 as Director of the Energy Program uh, and spent uh, 14 years before that working at Origin Energy in uh, senior executive roles. Uh, Tony uh, was awarded the Member of the Order of Australia uh, and it was indeed for his uh, service uh, to conservation, the environment, particularly in the areas of energy policy, climate change and sustainability. So that's our distinguished panel. And I'd like to ask you first to join with me in welcoming to the podium, Professor Warwick McKibben. Uh, 
Good evening, everyone, and um, thank you, Ken. Thank you to Grattan and to the ANU for inviting me to participate in this panel today. Um, for those who are interested, um, I wrote an op-ed in the Fin Review this week just to lay out the basis of my presentation tonight. Um, and I know some of you don't like going behind paywalls, and so if you don't like that, it's at the Climate Change Institute at ANU, and you can also find it at the Brookings Institution website for free. So um, that's the source of my comments. What I want to do is, um, is first address the question, are, are we likely to have a, a credible, sensible climate policy in Australia? And my answer is actually probably now, because we've reached such a level of farce that really you have to start again. You can't keep tinkering at the margin with populist policies to move the debate one step forward, five steps back. And so I think actually you, you really do have the option here to get it right um, for the 75th time. Um, how do, you, how, how do you design it? And that's what I wanted to focus in my 10 minutes, um, was what, what, do you, what should you take into account? And um, there's a couple of issues which I think are pretty clear. And these insights come from the study I, I did for the Abbott government, which the Abbott government didn't know I was doing, um, which was what Australia's target should be at the, in the Paris negotiations. So we did the modelling for that and we came up with a target of 26 to 28%. What we learned from doing that study was firstly, um, the impact on Australia of, of a carbon policy actually isn't really what Australia does. The biggest impact is what the world does. And so Australia needs to design a policy which not only works well in Australia, but works well in the globe so that when the global policies start to take effect, they have less impact on the Australian economy, but maximum impact on the global environment. So it's really the debate should be about what should the world be doing, not so much about what should we do in Australia. Um, secondly, um, in that study, and it somehow got through the census, we showed that if Australia didn't participate in the Paris Agreement, and then Australia would be better off, except if you took into account the uncertainty on policy causing uh, very expensive uh, energy investments, so that we put in place the cost of capital in actually a world where there was no policy. And that was actually a bigger loss to Australia, not having a policy framework, than actually the international action on climate change impacting on Australia. It got through, I don't know how, but there's a section in that report if you check it out, the 2015 report. The third point is that, and the politicians love to debate the size of their target. The issue is not the size of the target, and I think that's why the Kyoto Protocol failed and why the Copenhagen negotiations failed, because people were fixated on what should the target be. I don't think that's the question. The question is, how do you get the biggest cuts in greenhouse emissions at the lowest cost? And that's not a question of finding a target. That's a question of finding policies to achieve CO2 emissions at lowest possible cost. Why, why do we care about the cost? Well, because there is a balance between the environmental benefits and the economic cost. If you believe there is no trade-off there, you have to acknowledge that the cost will be taken advantage of in the political debate. So if you ignore the cost, the politics will kill the policy and you won't get the environmental outcome that you need. So you do have to acknowledge costs. Now, when you look at any climate policy, every climate policy has a carbon price in it. Every climate policy has a carbon price in it. Carbon taxes are explicit. Carbon trading systems are explicit. Batteries have a hidden price. Lots of climate policies have a hidden price. And the feature of most of these prices is they're much, much higher than the transparent prices that are in a carbon pricing system. And so really, when it comes down to it, you have to have as a foundation of a suite of policies, you have to have a very clear carbon price where you can then build a whole range of other policies on top of. Um, another insight is that not all CO2 emissions come from electricity generation. In fact, in Australia, it's less than a third of the, of the CO2 emissions that we need to worry about. 
So the policy that you need to design has to deal with not just how you produce energy, but how you use energy, how you use agriculture, how you clear the land. So the entire debate is focused in Australia on electricity generation. There could be incredibly low options for CO2 emissions in other parts of the economy. And if you haven't micromanaged a policy to nail that, that emission, then you're going to forego a very low cost option. And that's why a carbon price right across the economy deals with the production of energy, the consumption of energy, and the individual decisions you make about whether you drive your car or walk to work or what you invest in in the long term. Um, and the final, the final aspect, what's really important is you cannot have a credible climate policy in Australia or any country if it's held together by negotiations with a minor party. It has to be a consensus between the majority of the politicians supported by the majority of the electorate. Now, I would argue right now we have a majority of the electorate that wants to take credible, serious climate policy action. And the politicians are well behind the, the, the ball in understanding that. And again, uh, they, they seem to have got themselves into a point where the idea of a carbon price is off the table. And in fact, you see that, well, you see that in the report I wrote for the Abbott um, government was that I wasn't allowed to use the word carbon price. And we modelled a carbon price without calling it that. That's one of the great achievements I've had in my entire professional career. Um, <laughs> and so I was very happy that this report got through. Now, there is a third final point. If you really do want to have a policy that sustains itself, you need to deal with the back pocket of consumers and voters and the balance sheet of corporations. You want to create a constituency in the society whose financial interest depends on the policy surviving. And there are ways to do that, and I won't, do, I won't talk about it now, but in my own research on the McKibben-Wilcoxon hybrid, which is well published and covered by IPCC reports, etc., and was the basis of the Shoregold Review, which was the, probably in my, my view, the best potential policy Australia put forward on climate policy under the Howard government. Unfortunately, it was um, when the Howard government lost, the Labor gov government had to come up with a different policy, and they picked a really bad version of a carbon tax, a carbon tax that you knew would rise over time and then disappear into the European trading system at zero. And therefore, you completely destroyed the uh, long-term incentives for investment because you thought the policy would fail. I said the policy would fail, and the policy did fail. So when you put all this together, I think this is a great opportunity for Australia to put in place a carbon framework. It's got to deal with all the features I've talked about. Politicians have to realise that this is not necessarily of huge cost to the Australian economy. It is potentially of enormous benefits to the Australian economy. But there will be transition costs, so you have to trade off the short-term costs. You have to have a system that manages the short-term costs, but enables there to be a long-term carbon pricing signal to give an opportunity to investment to move away from fossil fuel intensive economy. And until you balance these long-term environmental issues with the short-term cost, I don't think you'll, you'll make much progress. And I think that's probably my 10 minutes. Is that probably right? Okay. Thank you very much, Ken, and thank you to Tony for inviting me to, to join the panel tonight. Um, it is a pleasure to be such a part of such an eminent panel and 
than me, um, but it's fantastic to be here. I thought I'd just start off by, um, I'm sure many of you know, but the Business Council of Australia represents some of, well, the large majority of Australia's biggest businesses in the country, um, over 100 of Australia's largest business, including the electricity retailers, the largest producers, and the large energy users. So when we meet, and I see a couple of our members in the room tonight, we certainly have some diverse views around the table, but I think that actually uh, strengthens our position. I thought I'd take a bit of a, a look back at the year that was, the past few years that was, and then come to the, the question at the end. Um, but as we all know that for more than a, a decade, uh, the debate over energy and climate change policy has plagued this country. It has resulted in higher electricity prices and a less stable and reliable system for households and businesses. And Australians are now paying the price for this political impasse. Australia's economy was shaped by access to low-cost energy and we are blessed with many natural resources. But the Australian global energy landscape is changing rapidly, and so is Australia's. And to manage this transition and regain our competitive advantage, we need an approach to energy and climate change policy that strikes a better balance between promoting economic growth, energy security, and environmental sustainability. And in recent years, we haven't struck this balance. To overcome this, we need a stable, durable policy framework to manage the transition. And whether we can achieve this is the big question. It has certainly been a turbulent few months and few years when it comes to developing energy policy. Despite the various schemes, mechanisms and policies proposed by all levels of government, the Business Council has consistently advocated for an integrated, national and bipartisan energy and climate change policy framework that prioritises and delivers on four key goals. That is secure and reliable energy supply, affordable energy supply, a strong internationally competitive economy, and of course, meeting current and future emissions reduction targets. We believe that energy and climate change policy should be integrated because implementing a policy in one space has consequences for the other. To date, Australian climate change policies have largely been uncoordinated and inconsistent with broader energy policy, poorly costed, and at times have operated in conflict with one another. At the height of this policy flux, there were over 200 government programs aimed at addressing climate change. This policy instability has created a volatile investment environment and hinders the transformational change in the energy sector. Competing climate change policies have also created complexity, cost and unintended consequences at a sectoral level, leaving an enduring dysfunction in, in sectors such as energy. So just to take a quick stock take, since 2001, We've had the MRET, which is now the RET, although it's been increased and decreased a few times. We've had the CPRS debate, the ruling out, then the introduction, then the repeal of the carbon tax. The Emissions Reduction Fund was established and now is up to its eighth auction. The Paris Agreement has been signed and adopted, and we have a 26 to 28% national target, with a competing 45% target from the opposition. The current government launched their climate change policy a few years ago and ruled out an EIS in the process. The Finkel review was completed and made a raft of recommendations, including the clean energy target, which was eventually rejected. And then just this year, we've had the NEG rise and fall, the ACCC report handed down, and now industry is facing unprecedented government intervention in the form of the big stick legislation and underwriting new generation investment proposal. And it's in this environment we expect companies and investors to have the confidence to make long-term investment decisions. After a decade of more, 
of policy paralysis and intervention into the market, business is crying out for stability when it comes to energy and climate change policy. That's why we called the National Energy Guarantee a circuit breaker and a game changer. For the first time, we had a policy that put both affordability and reliability at the centre of the debate alongside reducing emissions to meet our international commitments. And because of this, it came with unprecedented support from large users, the energy producers and electricity retailers. Unsurprisingly, the Business Council and our members were extremely disappointed when the net collapsed. And as our Chief Executive has said on time and time again, the problems that existed before the NEG still exist today. And while we understand the need to prioritise affordability, greater intervention and more regulation, including forced divestment, which even the ACCC rejected as an extreme measure, is not the answer and it won't reduce power prices. According to the former Energy Minister, the energy market is going to require over $200 billion of new investment in the coming decades. And this requires stable and durable policy framework that sets out how emissions are going to be treated and how reliability will be achieved. The call for policy certainty from business and industry is sometimes perceived as a bit of an abstract concept. I understand that. So I thought I'd just touch on a few examples to provide a real world of how this is actually important when it comes to making the big investment decisions and how the lack of a durable policy framework impacts on companies making investment decisions in long-term assets. For example, Energy Australia has plans to invest in a $400 million gas power plant at its Tallawarra site in New South Wales, adding 400 megawatts of reliable capacity to New South Wales. But without knowing the policy framework in which this large investment will be made, it is very difficult to pull the trigger. Indeed, the Energy Australia Chairman Graham Badley just said this week that there was now too much uncertainty around energy industry regulation to invest in capacity. He said, we're in desperate need of certainty before Energy Australia can proceed with new investment in new capacity that would replace Liddell which we have on the drawing board, but will have uncertain returns until we have certainty around the direction of energy policy. Companies struggle to make investment decisions on 30 year plus assets when climate trajectories, and equally importantly, the means to meet that trajectory are highly contested. Boards simply aren't prepared to make the big bets in that environment. Combine this uncertainty with the government's recent interventionist approach, forced divestment powers and the added sovereign risk, the big retailers are understandably freezing their new investments. As Frank Calabria of Origin said just this week, leaving aside climate policy and government proposing to underwrite generation, how do I invest money with this in play, with this bill in play, referring to the big stick legislation? There's no doubt that bad policy created this mess and ill-conceived and rushed policy won't solve it. Policy durability is a critical issue for the Business Council and our members, and to achieve this will likely require a bipartisan approach. Sadly, looking to the future of the policy landscape at the moment, we have the two major parties and the Greens advocating for starkly different emissions reduction targets, let alone little to no detail or agreement on the suite of policies to meet them, whether that's in the energy sector or in the broader economy. So on that point, I'll leave it there and look forward to the discussion. Tony Wood to present his perspective. Thanks, Ken, and good evening. Um, since um, Parliament's not sitting for a few months, I'm going to work on the basis that whatever I say, no one will notice politically, and I can um, 
go to the heart sure. of the political challenge, I think, that, that, that is behind the, the issue that we want to discuss this evening because, you know, we've, we're not short of policies. I mean, some of them are better than others. I, I don't disagree with um, Warwick's point about what the nature of good policy looks like. Um, many of us get in the area of what would any policy look like um, the way we've been. And maybe we'll try everything else first and we'll go back to where we should have been in the first place. And maybe that's exactly where we might go with Labor um, if there is an election which Labor wins next year. So a couple of points that I think are worth just reiterating about the politics of all this is that you know, th this, this, this mess has many, um, this has many uh, parents and uh, identifying the parents sometimes can be useful um, and sometimes sobering. So if you go back to, as Warwick said, the 2007 election, um, John Howard went to that election with an emissions trading scheme and lost the election. So he had the he had the he had the he had the uh, the position inside the coalition. He had the, the the support of the coalition to do this, not without some difficulty, but then lost the election. Um, Kevin Rudd, as we all know, didn't stay the course, and um, he became fixated with uh, using uh, policies to try and kill Turnbull rather than get good policy up, and lost that one. The Greens uh, wanted the perfect and never got anything as a result of what they tried to do. Um, Abbott then saw the political opportunity and he, um, uh, he managed to make, get the conclusion that Turnbull then lost the leadership of the coalition. I think industry, um, you know, I think where industry now is interesting, but in those, at that time, I would suggest that industry was not supporting action on climate change, certainly not on a broad basis. I mean, there were companies uh, who were active in the, in, in the, on the side of taking action on climate change, but that was not the broad church of industry. And that was clearly unhelpful. Um, and I think in some ways, governments didn't realise how quickly industry would change as it saw the reality of what was really going on in the world. Um, Julie Gillard, I think, made a, a dog's breakfast of the, of the carbon policy that she tried to implement in trying to do something that would almost be all things to all people. Um, she had something that she said wouldn't be a, a carbon tax and then admitted it was almost. Uh, and then one of the challenges with climate policy, when you think about imposing a price or a tax, is you raise money, what do you do with it? She tried to give some of that money back to people via changing the tax scales. The majority of people didn't notice um, the actual connection between the two. And then finally, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, uh, most recently, uh, the complete opposite of what happened with Howard. Malcolm Turnbull had the support, I would argue, broadly, if he'd pushed forward of the Australian people and the electorate, he lost the support of the coalition. And again, he lost that as well. I think one of the uh, issues, of course, is that climate policy has been a surrogate for an ongoing debate around the fundamental philosophy of, of the coalition government, of the coalition parties. And until that's resolved, that will continue to be a major problem for them. Um, I agree with Warwick that the best hope is bipartisan policy. Um, I'm not sure how we see that. And in particular, this is one of those areas where I think the best hope is, would be a uh, a policy that was introduced by a coalition government. Now, um, we're not likely to see that anytime soon, I don't think. Um, and the two that got closest in some ways with broad support were actually the policies that um, Howard was looking to implement in 2007 and didn't, and the policy that Turnbull was looking to implement in 2018 and didn't. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's an interesting irony in how that's played out. What's changed since then that might give us any form of optimism? Firstly, I think, um, I think Labor has learned from some of those lessons. That one of the difficulties is I think Labor is going to be gun shy of a few issues and this whole question of carbon pricing and carbon tax and, car and trading and all those words, um, as Warwick said, we've tried to absolutely eliminate 
from our, our lexicon, vocabulary, thesaurus and everything else, um, need to come back on the agenda, but how they do that politically is still a challenge for the Federal Labor Party. I think the, um, um, the, the Greens, despite the fact that some of what they're pushing for I think is unrealistic, and, and I think the Greens today have a leadership that's far more pragmatic. Um, and would come on board. And I think the other side of the course is the business has turned. The majority of business is now, for all the many cases, the right reasons, but also for commercial reasons. And there are a whole range of reasons why companies and directors are now faced with some interesting challenges arising from climate change. Industry is now on board and pushed incredibly strongly for the National Energy Guarantee and was equally incredibly frustrated when the current government not only dropped it, but never explained why they dropped it at all. And finally, I think um, the other thing that's changed, or that it has, almost hasn't changed, that the coalition seems to be in hopeless conflict um, and highlighted by um, the comments by Malcolm Turnbull and Julie Bishop much more recently. So where, where might we go? I think there's, a, you know, there's all sorts of possible combinations politically, but some of, the more, some of the ones that I think are interesting, one is that let's assume for a minute there was a coalition victory um, in 2019. I think in that case, we'd have a Morrison government in, um, much more emboldened, um, I think the current mess would continue in relation to energy and climate policy, but on what would happen then you'd see a coalition of the states, um, maybe even with some elements of industry who'd get on and do something anyway. So that's sort of one possibility. It's messy and it's not at all attractive, and one would have to say on the basis of the current polling, it's not very likely either. Um, the others tend to be what happens if we have an incoming Labor government at a federal level um, next year. Most people would now say we've got a May election pretty well locked in. Firstly, I think that one alternative would be that if Labor is victorious in the House of Representatives, but ends up with a fractious Senate and a negative opposition. And Labor's already said that if they cannot get bipartisan support for the policy they want to implement, and they'll most likely steal the coalition's policy anyway, then they will implement, they won't proceed with the National Energy Guarantee. They'll proceed to implement a whole range of centrally planned, regulated impositions and subsidies. That is a very ugly alternative. It may very well reduce emissions. It will certainly increase the percentage of renewables, but it will almost certainly be at higher cost than otherwise. That's one possibility, I think, which is, which is quite real and seems to be one of the alternatives that Labor is allowing for themselves. Um, another possibility is that Labor, again, is victorious, but pushes through with the neg and the 45% target. Um, of course, you know, Warwick made the point that the, the, the mechanism and the target are not the same thing. And we've had a debate, supposedly a debate around, you know, the, the, the Labor and the, some of the states were criticising the coalition a few months ago for wanting to drive the, uh, the car too slowly. Uh, and, um, uh, and now we've got the government saying, well, Labor wants to drive the car too fast. Um, what we should be really doing is thinking about, well, what sort of car do we want? Let's get that right first. And then we'll decide how fast we want to drive it. Um, but we don't seem to be able to separate these two issues. So I think there's a possibility that Labor does get elected. And then they might, they might actually still, however, decide that given they have the support, and this is a realistic possibility in my mind, of the states, including Liberal states, even if New South Wales Liberals do get re-elected next year in March, they have got some very strong policy objectives for the long term in relation to climate change. They may very well find strong support across the states and within uh, industry and push forward with something that actually is a strong policy. Now, whether or not they, they, uh, they, they, and then I think a real possibility would be that a subsequent coalition party, which would be completely weakened during the election, would find it difficult to, to object that may at least um, uh, give it tentative support. And finally, I think there's another alternative which um, 
uh, which is um, basically a, a Labor government just rides roughshod over the opposition anyway and doesn't have a problem with the Senate and, again, gets support. So I think there's a, there are coalitions out there now which are rather interesting and could finally do it. Um, I think the, under all of these, um, the, the assumption if Labor gets elected is that they do increase our target to 45%. One of the challenges is what do they do about the non-electricity sector because reducing emissions by 45% in some of those sectors is more challenging. And because they have already placed a 45% target on electricity, um, it makes it at least theoretically a bit hard, at least pragmatically a little harder to see how you get more emissions out of the electricity sector. However, there are mechanisms which could be linked to the sort of policy that, that has been already talked about, which we can get into if anyone is interested later, um, to how you might do that. So there are ways to address that challenge, but it is a big challenge. And I'm not sure that, I don't think industry that is currently strongly supportive of the National Energy Guarantee, that is the car, I'm not sure they're that yet excited about the speed at which Labor wants to drive the car. So how this plays out um, is gonna be more than interesting. And finally, the other point I'd say that I'll be fascinated by, I suspect Labor will be very quiet on at least for a while, um, and maybe even until after the election, is whether or not they're prepared to introduce some form of carbon pricing mechanism alongside the emissions reduction obligation of the National Energy Guarantee. Um, if they do, um, that would end up looking more like the emissions intensity scheme that Labor took to the 2016 election and that Frydenberg and Turnbull most famously dumped um, after a, an unfortunate and somewhat awkward radio interview that uh, Josh Frydenberg did. So the politics are fascinating. Um, the consequences are serious. And for those who've watched this stuff, um, 2019 is going to be um, more than exciting um, I'm, a, I'm a, probably right now optimistic that are, there are alternatives through here that could end up in a better position at the end of 2019 than we, begin, than we end 2018. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony. Uh, so now I'd like to have a bit of a discussion uh, amongst the panel members and, uh, and uh, toss up a, a few curly questions that uh, we might uh, talk about for uh, the next 20 minutes or so, and after that, open it up to general question and answer. Um, so first of all, if we look back over the last decade or more of government policy uncertainty in the energy and climate sector, uh, what we saw, uh, of course, uh, following the, uh, the removal of the carbon tax uh, and even the, the threat of a change of government which would remove the carbon tax was a, a freeze on industry investment. And this freeze uh, took place around uh, sort of the early 2014 period, continued into 2015. And it's only more recently that we've seen industry uh, showing an appetite to invest. And of course, since then, we've had even more uncertainty in, in, uh, in uh, the uh, carbon, uh, oh, sorry, in the um, uh, energy and climate policy area. We had, of course, uh, following the removal of the carbon tax by the coalition party room, uh, we had the uh, suggestion uh, by the chief scientist early in his uh, report uh, that we might look at an energy intensity scheme. And indeed, uh, the then minister, Josh Frydenberg, uh, Frydenberg took that on board for a, a nanosecond or so before the coalition party room said, no, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, so that was withdrawn. Uh, then the chief scientist said, well, OK, if we're not going to do that, we might need to look at a clean energy target. And uh, then, of course, uh, when the report was finally delivered, the coalition party room yet again struck out an energy and climate policy and removed the clean energy target. Uh, and then, of course, just a couple of months ago, we saw with the uh, the removal of, uh, of Malcolm Turnbull, 
the uh, removal of the NEG by the Coalition Party Room at the same time. So four times in about uh, four years, uh, the Coalition Party Room has intervened uh, at a level which has thrown energy and climate policy into chaos. However, having said all that, despite the hiatus in investment in the 2014-15 period, after that, industry started to take things onto their own responsibility, and there was a, an upturn in investment. <coughs> Until we're now at the point where analysis at uh, the ANU that we've done indicates that at the current rate of investment, which is over five gigawatts of renewable energy capacity each year, every year for the next couple of years, that uh, potentially, if industry was allowed to continue that investment, then we could reach around about 50% renewables in the electricity sector by the mid-2020s. Way ahead of any prediction or projection, of course, but of course only if industry were allowed to undertake this investment. Uh, so my question is, do we actually need government policy to make this happen? <laughs> and I'll throw that out to the panel. Who'd like to take that first? Look, I'll... I'll, I'll jump into that. Um, it depends what we want. <laughs> I mean, we don't need government policy to cause things to happen. Things will happen. Companies will invest, they'll do stuff, and they'll get on with doing things, right? What they'll do is things that are different, more expensive, less efficient than they would have done if they'd had credible policy and stable policy. And the word um, uh, certainty, I think, is sometimes the wrong word. I mean, industry does. Industry makes money out of uncertainty. Um, that's how you, you, know, you, you, you invest on the basis of risks. And that's what risk is all about. So I think the, the issue is, however, we don't, what we don't have is a predictable, credible climate policy framework going forward. And, it's, and we haven't had one for a while. And so the specific example of the renewable energy target, Ken, I think is, is a great one where, you know, we had this almost the, the, the underlying target was being debated around various, is it 20%, is it 23%, is it 35%, whatever it was going to be, and how many gigawatts hours was that? And eventually, and it went from zero, which was at one stage Prime Minister Abbott was pushing, to where it ended up being settled after after some bipartisan negotiation between Labor and the government um, to where it is now. And then that created this wave of renewable energy that you talked about. Um, the challenge, of course, is that right now we've got really high prices. Right now we've got really high prices. The problem is that people who might invest look at those really high prices and say, well, normally a market would allow us, we'd invest them on those really high prices, but we can see this wave of zero marginal cost renewables coming into the system, much of which is going to be subsidised either through the renewable energy target or through power purchase agreements underwritten by state governments such as Victoria, how can you possibly invest in that? So we end up with a complete mess right now. Now, that means we do have to unpick some of this and provide some direction. I don't think it's up to whether government co companies are allowed to invest, it's whether or not they can invest with some confidence that the world will simply not change because a government, Labor coalition or whatever, state or federal, will intervene and start doing things of the sort that we've seen both the coalition and federal Labor talk about only in the last couple of months. And that really scares investors. Now, if we want to have a nationalised, um, renationalised, government-controlled and own system, that would be a different debate worth having but we ended up, we sort of pretend we want markets and as soon as the markets do what they are supposed to do but we don't like it, then we suddenly try and intervene and that's what scares investors. Can I just um, follow on to that? Because I've got a different perspective. I mean, I think the issue here is technology. Technological innovation is, what going, to, is, what, is going to make a difference. And the question is what drives technology? And there's some examples. Two examples I'll give you. One is in the US, the price of oil hit $150 a barrel. 
So uh, people started to use horizontal drilling and fracking in a way to get oil. And that happened to also get gas, and it happened to be able to be able to use in cogen with renewables. And you got this massive penetration of electricity in the US where, in fact, natural gas went past coal as a major electricity generator. And that is what brought down US emissions. It wasn't Obama's policy, and it wasn't the state government's policies as much as this fundamental change in the price of energy. I've just put 30 kilowatts on my roof, not because someone told me that I was part of the renewable energy guarantee, but because it's actually going to save me a lot of money, given my power consumption and the fact that I can sell it back to the grid. So I made an economic decision to, now that technology is such that the price of solar panels have come down so much and the efficiency of these panels is so great that it's actually in my own self-interest to do this. So I think the issue here is where government's role is, is to actually give the price signals that let the technologies evolve, which solve the problem and not get, as Tony said, not get in the way of the, the technological revolution that can be a, a, have a big impact on this problem. Indeed, and you must have a very big roof. <laughs> so, so Jessica, um, from an industry perspective, I mean, this equation that Tony's outlined that, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uncertainty around uh, what's going to happen in the future drives up the perceived risk, this drives up the cost of finance, mm -hmm. and that drives up electricity prices. So if a government is serious about keeping electricity prices down, Shouldn't they be looking at introducing policy certainty by coming up with a, a scheme that can be agreed to by both parties moving forward? Isn't that the best way to drive prices down? Absolutely. I couldn't put it better myself. Um, <laughs> if only we had both sides of uh, the table coming and forming that view. But unfortunately, we're sitting in a situation where they there's not that. Um, I think picking up on what Tony said uh, around the fact that business will get on and they will do what they can in any environment, that is true. Um, business wants to get on with doing business, but we do need government to come to the table and provide that overarching framework to provide the confidence, not necessarily to minimise all risk, but to help direct uh, companies, investors down in a direction where they know that they're making long-term investments and they will get returns on that in the long term. The problem at the moment is that we have a we have government stepping into the market. We have uh, this big stick legislation. We have proposals in terms of underwriting new investment uh, that fundamentally changes how companies see the investment environment, and they're not prepared to take the risk in that environment at the moment when they're not sure what's going to happen over the next six twelve months. And of course, the fact that there's a federal election in the mix makes that even more complicated. Yeah, so if we look at the sort of the broader perspective of the, of the entire economy, not just the electricity sector, as was mentioned, uh, there's been a lot of talk in recent times uh, by uh, Woodside, for example, about the need to introduce, say, a price on carbon. And very quickly, BHP and uh, Rio Tinto uh, jumped on the same bandwagon and echoed the, the same uh, call. Uh, so, uh, if you look at uh, the Carbon Market Institute's analysis of of what uh, the uh, corporate sector is doing. Uh, what they found was that, uh, as we all know, many companies, uh, particularly in the finance, insurance and banking sectors, but also more broadly in industry and particularly in the electricity sector, all keep their own internal price on carbon. They all run their own internal price. And they do so because they need to be able to plan for the future. And the survey by the Carbon Market Institute showed that the median price on carbon in Australian business at the moment was running at about $20 a tonne, which is more than the $12 a tonne notionally that the Emissions uh, Reduction Fund uh, attracts. 
So my question of the panel is now, uh, certainly we're talking about energy and climate policy, but surely we should be talking more broadly about an economy-wide policy that introduces a price on carbon. Warwick. Absolutely. <laughs> and we know how to do it. And we know how to do it. And it hasn't been done anywhere in the world properly, but there are lots of ideas out there that we could test. The hybrid that I propose is one option, but there's lots of hybrid policies out there. And again, the key issue is to have the long-term target embedded and then to get maximum reductions at minimum cost, which means in some years you may exceed the target. In other years, you may turn out some technological innovation comes along and you can do uh, really, really deep cuts really quickly. But if you've committed to a target, you rule that out. That's one of the problems with cap and trade. If you have a cap and trade system, if I reduce my emissions, all it does is change the price of carbon in the market and you can buy your permit and your emissions will go back up. So the emissions will be whatever's in the market, whatever the target is. We want to be able to go deep if we need to go deep. We also want to be slowing down reductions if it turns out we find out it's incredibly costly to do it now rather than next year. And so that's why I think the flexibility is important and that's in the design. Mm -hmm. Jess? Absolutely as well. I think uh, the business community and the business council has been um, on the record for some time saying that in, you know, in the long term, um, obviously at the moment we've had sort of this sector-based approach We've seen uh, the safeguard mechanism. We've got we had the neg on the table, uh, and while we supported those policies because they were uh, going to provide that durable framework in those sectors that uh, our members desperately wanted, we did say that you know in the long term we need to think about how we can put this into a whole of economy approach to ensure that we do have least cost abatement across the entire economy. Because if we keep going down the track of sector by sector, that's only going to drive up costs in the long term. Mm -hmm. okay. I think. Um the mounting evidence is that um, the directors of public companies around the world now have got very strong legal advice as to their exposure to these challenges. And one of the things they now are almost required to do as a matter of personal liability protection is to make sure their companies have analysed the impact on their company and the interest, impact on the carrying value of the assets they have. If the world actually does address climate change, we end up with carbon prices of not $20 a tonne, but $40 or $50 a tonne. In terms of a practical sense, way forward out of this, I think that, you know, interestingly, one of the things that if it is um, unelected, whatever that, uh, if, the, if Labor wins next year, one of the things that the current government will leave behind is actually two, there's two things they'll leave behind in respect to this. And it very may very well be that Labor, if they do get elected, will pick up both of them. Um, one of them, of course, is the is, is the effectively the, the the Turnbull model, if you like, the National Energy Guarantee, which is on the electricity side. But the other is is Greg Hunt's um, um, bequeathment to the nation, and that is the emissions reduction fund and the safeguard mechanism. Now, many people would know that when he first announced it, it was neither safe nor a guard against anything. Um, but what it what it is is a mechanism by which you can put. Um, caps on or baseline, caps on various sectors based upon their historical future emissions and progressively reduce those baselines and you can use make then put an obligation on those organizations that they have to either meet that target or purchase some form of credit and they can do that basically by uh, internally funding the emissions reduction fund which was initially funded by a two and a half billion dollar investment from the government on its own balance sheet and that would all become self-funding and in addition to that you could then link that with the uh, with the NEG, the National Energy Guarantee, and provide some degree of tradability or fungibility, you'd end up with a effectively a, a national um, economy-wide carbon price. Now that is an ugly system, right? <laughs> um, but politically, it's not well, it's not the silliest thing Labor could do because they would be taking two policies, both of which were designed by the coalition, and say we're going to just do it. 
And I think it would be harder right now. It's a lot easier in government, but it'll be harder for a, an op, an op, an, a coalition that's wiped out the next election if that's what happens. I think to resist that sort of challenge, and I think that's where tantalising Labor um, people are saying Labor is, is playing. And in that same vein, Tony, I think uh, you know, by and large, uh, there was a very close agreement on the neg, uh, and that could easily have happened uh, if uh, both sides had been able to get together based on their position at the time. Uh, so it's often not the actual policy that's the issue, it's the targets. And you know, I take on board what Warwick says about targets not always being a great thing, but targets in terms of our climate change target or in terms of renewable energy target or any other target, these are often the sticking points. It's the level. It's not so much the mechanism, it's the level. So my question is, if we're going to move down a track of bipartisan agreement, at least on a mechanism, how should we determine the level? Should it be done? by going to the parliament, taking a vote, worrying about the minor parties in the Senate, not getting it through and all these other things, or should it just be done by regulation? I think the, I mean, the, the answer is we won't get bipartisan support on the target. Mm -hmm. So you've got two alternatives, right? One is um, you put the, I mean, the, the, current the current target is not legislated. The current government is a target is, is that the, the coalition government under Tony Abbott took to the Paris Agreement. Yep. So you could implement this without, by avoiding legislation. And so that would be one way to achieve the outcome um, that we're talking about. I think the other tr trick here is that, you know, and I think, to be honest, I think Josh Frydenberg um, you know, was widely um, uh, credited with doing a lot of good work in terms of the National Energy Guarantee. But he was working, I think, on a model that said, look, what we need to do is find a policy for which we can get bipartisan support. Mm -hmm. What he didn't realise is in the, the, his own party, that was exactly the opposite of what they wanted. Yeah. They wanted to differentiate themselves from Labor. Indeed. So as soon as he ended up, look, anything that looked like something that Labor would support, of course, he had to say, well, the, the, his own party was saying, we won't, we won't support that. And that, once that happened, that was the end of it. I mean, that was really, the, uh, that was the problem. In my mind, that was the thing that really did kill off the National Energy Guarantee. That, it is not the prettiest policy any has ever seen, but whether or not you can take, take it and move it gradually in the direction that Warwick's talking about will be one of the interesting challenges over the next several years. There's uh, another example of the old Churchillian statement that the enemy is not sitting over there, they're sitting behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. One of the problems though, again, with the whole of debate about having what's the target, what should the target be, mm -hmm. is that it only covers half of the issue. The other issue is what cost are we willing to pay to reduce CO2 emissions? And a target, by definition, you do not know what it will cost. It may be too deep or it may not be deep enough. So you need a policy that will give you the deepest cuts you can possibly... See, my, my favourite target would be zero emissions in 2050, a linear reduction between now and then, and a mechanism which then allows that to be varied over time mm -hmm. if the costs were high in some years or low in some years. And so it's an adaptable policy. You need a policy that's adaptable in this world because the world is highly uncertain. Go, go, go back to the Kyoto negotiations where everybody thought China should be taking a binding target. Look at what the world's projections of CO2 and energy use in China was in, 2000, in 1996. Nobody predicted China would have a boom in 2000 to 2010. They would have just walked away from the Kyoto Protocol, as other countries did, because their emissions were just far too high, mm. because people's predictions were wrong. That's why the Labor Party right. policies all failed, was because their advisers predict the wrong world in the future. And so when the European trading system wasn't this magically wonderful thing, but actually almost blew up the European economies, and collapse, then people walked away from it. So the future is uncertain. A policy of a target is a certain target in an uncertain world. It will probably fail. So you need this adaptability. You need at least two dimensions to the approach, the cost and the benefit. 
So you're saying that you should have you should specify an endpoint, but you shouldn't necessarily necessarily uh, specify the trajectory in detail getting to the endpoint. No, you specify exactly what the trajectory is and On the endpoint. No, no, you just say this is our target, mm -hmm. and now we're going to create a system where, in a market mechanism, if it turns out when everybody's done everything they can, it's too expensive to hit the target this year because you put a cap on the price of carbon, then those emissions will come in the future. And if it's cheaper to do that, what, what, than, than what the target is, you can actually bring those future re emission reductions to the present. That's what you want. So when you look after, when you get to 2050 and you look at the path, the path won't be a linear reduction. It'll be something that's wobbling around. Right. But you couldn't predict that back in 2015 or 2019. You certainly can predict it in 2050 when you look backwards, but it's too late. So you need a policy that's adaptable but credible and, in, and allows for this flexibility. I'd, yes. I'd agree with um, what Tony said about the fact that I, I don't think we're going to see bipartisanship around the target, uh, certainly not before the election. Mm -hmm. I think we've seen that already with the Labor Party um, federal opposition picking up the neg and saying they're going to take that to the election and the response from the government is to purely focus on the 45% target as for their reason not to support the National Energy Guarantee, um, even though it was a, a policy that they designed. So I think, you know, that's that's a clear example of where we're not going to reach bipartisanship around the target. And to further Tony's point, I think there are many within both sides of politics who don't want to reach consensus on that because it does separate them and provide them with a, a platform to run on um, towards the election. I think that your, your point, Warwick, around focusing on what the target should be is a problem. Um, we have so much debate around that rather than talking about how we're actually going to achieve emissions reduction across the economy. Uh, if we spent more time talking about the, the right policy settings and how we're going to achieve it and less time focusing on what that target should be at a future point in time, um, I think that we would bring more people together with us. Um, I think it gets a little bit lost, particularly in the public, around just talking about targets and not you know, explaining to the, the public what that actually means, how this is going to be achieved and what impact it's going to have on them and what the trade-offs are going to be. Well, Ken, the other thing about this is that one of the things that I think our politicians have singly failed to do is actually come up with the compelling narrative to the Australian electorate as to what this is all about. <laughs> I mean, we've ended up with this crazy debate. I mean, uh, the minutiae around all these various mechanisms is fascinating for people like the people on this panel but most people don't give a shit about this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, just the acronyms. Largely, if we agreed we we're going to get anywhere near zero emissions by 2050, there's whole there's different mechanisms that could do it. I mean, and most of the ones we've already talked about, and you mentioned them all before, could have had us there. They'd all be different cost levels, and ideally, you want the one that's going to get you there at lowest cost, as Warwick said. But you know, that's where that, that's the that's the sad thing about this. And I think the you know the the, the government that really will um, win this and could win it for a while is the one that actually develops the compelling narrative and doesn't take the Australian people for granted, mm -hmm. doesn't pretend that, you know, uh, coal's going to be there forever, therefore we should support coal, even when coal is clearly moving towards its terminal end, but not for a while yet. Mm. And secondly, those who say, well, we're, we're just going to do it in the sedotal, it's not going to cost anything. Of course it's going to be costs, at least in the short term, until we do the technologies come through that drive down the cost. So both sides have been guilty of not telling people the reality as, they, as it should be told. And that narrative is what we desperately need. And that the, the, the political leader that does that, I think, will capture the, the Australian people on this issue. So given that we're unlikely to get an agreement before the election, we'll see two parties going head-to-head -head in the election uh, with different policies, or maybe one with no policy and one with a policy, 
an election that uh, has a likely outcome of a party coming in uh, that will uh, will definitively, at least uh, uh, for the moment, uh, introduce a policy to align energy and climate. And my question is, is that going to be a little bit like the GST? You remember the GST? Labor were taken kicking and screaming to an election that they lost. John Howard introduced the GST. There was a lot more kicking and screaming while that happened. But after it happened, Labor went completely quiet. So my question is, will this resolve the internal issues within the coalition afterwards and will everything go quiet? Or will we see a continued rearguard action over coming years that white ants, whatever policy comes in after the election? I think one of the dangers of that is if we have um, a, a Labor government come in and implement a, a policy, energy policy, whether that's an egg or some form of an egg, um, and then we have a, an opposition that says they're going to repeal it, is that does nothing for certainty or stability mm -hmm. in terms of investment. Um, and that's what we saw with the, the carbon tax um, in that it was introduced, but immediately it was said that it was going to be repealed. Right. Uh, so it did not create that sort of stable investment environment. So. Uh, I think a lot depends on what happens in the outcome of the election, um, the, whether the, if it is an incoming Labor government, if that is what um, the electorate decides, then depending on who remains in the coalition, who the leader is. Um, but I think there is potential for it to be in the future, in the future, um, Labor government supported by an opposition. Yeah. So my view on this is that the, the Labor Party proposals are not sufficient to do any sort of serious emission reductions in a different world. So all of a sudden, the international agreement moves down a different path. Batteries to poor people, subsidies to batteries, where poor people are subsidising wealthy people to bring down the price of batteries. That policy is flawed and it does reduce emissions, but not by very much. Right. And it's like the GST, it's a, it's a, it's a wealth transfer. Mm -hmm. And so with the GST, it was a revenue raising project. With the climate change policy, it's a totally different set of issues. It's you want a policy that can be rapidly wrap, wrapped up if you want to cut more quickly or rapidly slowed down if no one in the world is doing anything. You don't want Australia to be at the front cutting to zero emissions if the whole world does nothing. So I think you need that flexibility to do as much as possible at low cost. And the Labor policies aren't general enough. They're specific to capture the marginal vote in certain areas, in my view. Mm -hmm. I think the, um, the trick here is that it seems to be very difficult for politicians to look at a policy that would actually work and then implement it without then doing a whole lot of other things that stuff up the very policy they just decided to implement because it might work. Um, and so we that's why, and we have all these subsidies, we have all these other mechanisms to support all this and they're most, almost all of them are bad. And they're mostly bad because they're expensive and they're, or they're expensive on the wrong people. Um, I think the, for me, of, of the scenarios I talked about before, for me, one that might very well be have the best chance, and this is my poor naive optimism in December of 2018, for 2019 is that um, there's such a strong coalition between federal labour, industry, customers and suppliers of energy and the states that there's, it will be very difficult. If they get that act together, it will be almost difficult, if not impossible, for a weakened um, coalition opposition, if that's what plays out, um, to oppose it. And once that happened, I think we then have a chance of getting the, the GST type argument where you know, it becomes part of the furniture right. and, and life moves on. Um, and we'll wonder what the hell was that all about? Yeah. But that's that's my best hope. Um, it'll be dashed almost certainly, but um, I remain hopeful that could be a real possibility. Yeah. Well, on uh, that note of optimism, we might now open up to questions from the floor. 
Uh, can I ask that uh, you identify yourself when you ask the question and that we engage in a uh, respectful discussion? And if I detect a uh, hint of commentary rather than the question, we might move on to the next questioner. Um, Jenny Goldie from Climate Action Monero. Um, Ken, you said that um, a $20, $20 was already embedded into industry policy for, uh, for a carbon price. Uh, I think Warwick said that the global, uh, globally there may be a, one of 40 or $50 introduced. Um, notwithstanding all the, all the discussion we've had about bipartisanship and so on, um, what, what would be an ideal carbon price? <laughs> assuming that we could get one in. I mean, given that Woodside and BHP and so on are in favour of a carbon price now, um, I mean, surely it would be, have to be above $20 so that we wouldn't be rocked if there was a global carbon price. So what do individual members of the panel think that an ideal carbon price would be? So don't, don't forget that uh, we're not talking about a static situation here. This is the current snapshot in time uh, that indicates that a carbon price is more or less of the order of $20 a tonne. What industry won't tell you is what their trajectory is for it going forward because that's what they're basing all their planning on. Uh, but it is going to go upwards. Uh, so I guess the question more is about the trajectory. It's about the trajectory, how rapidly it goes up and to what level. Uh, and I would suggest a carbon price that works is an ideal carbon price. And so if people adopt it and they run with it, and it then kicks off a market that allows people to trade and that goes forward based on our uh, Paris goals to uh, provide incentives to uh, allow that trading to happen, then that's ideal. That's not necessarily the starting level that, that we should focus on. Just to reinforce what Ken says, so I could have $100 a tonne today and guarantee it'll be zero next year and it'll have no impact on innovation, it'll just, it'll just be a crunch to the economy or I could have a $20 a tonne carbon price that rises at the real rate of interest for the next 100 years, that'll have a massive impact on innovation because people believe it's going to be even more expensive to emit carbon in the future and they have time to change their behaviour and their investments to take advantage of the opportunities that that future cost provide. So it's the opportunity in the future versus the cost in the present. So the current price is not the question. The question is how do you lock in a credible trajectory the evidence is that you would probably escalate it at the real rate of interest because if you think of the, the global CO2 in the atmosphere as, a, as a, fixed, a fixed resource, then we know that the optimal way to deplete a fixed resource is basically to run it down at the real rate of interest if people discount the future. So the key issue here is to get the credibility of the future price, not to have something which is high now and then goes away because that'll die politically and it has no impact except cost, purely cost. Everyone agree? Next question. So uh, Richard Beggs from the yep. Fenner School. Um, has the Business Council actually come out and said they will support a carbon tax, carbon price rather? Have we? Yeah. No, we've come out and we've been very supportive of the National Energy Guarantee and supported, um, as we've said publicly um, time and time again, support action on climate change and integrating energy and climate change policy. Over the past uh, 12 months, we've been very, very active in working with uh, industry, our own industry, with government, with regulators on the design of the National Energy Guarantee. And we've um, come out publicly after Labor's announcement that they would take it to the next election and said we would support it. Good. A couple of questions down here. 
Hi, sorry. Um, I'm Caitlin Sears from Arena. Um, I was just wondering that with the rapid implementation of renewable energy into the grid, we're going to have a lot more technological and social equity and also legislative issues coming up. I was wondering whether there were any credible policies that could be proposed to maybe address some of those. You're not asking much. It's a very relevant question to some of the challenges that people have not been speaking about enough. Um, and I think the best way to think about this is, well, if we do have a, an emissions objective, then um, and we have a policy. I mean, the classic approach often is, well, every objective, you should have a policy. Right? So, um, and effectively, what we're talking about at the moment in Australia is, is having effectively two mechanisms. One is to make sure that um, we have an emissions trajectory, however that's done. And of course, as you may know, one of the Finkel recommendations was to have a trajectory to 2050, uh, by 2020. Um, then you've got the National Energy Guarantees Reliability Mechanisms, to, which is fundamentally, although it's a bit, it needs a lot more work yet, is about making sure that in pursuing uh, a lot of what almost certainly be a large percentage of intermittent supply can be balanced and make sure the system does become less, um, sec less secure or less reliable. Um, there are then a number of, I think, important social issues. So, for example, there's a lot of um, a social disruption that will go on in some parts of Australia when um, large coal-fired power stations will shut down. And we saw that, you know, when Hazelwood was announced, that wasn't done well at all. Um, you know, people were people in the in, in the Latrobe Valley were taken by surprise, and they shouldn't have been. Um, that this was something that was very likely to happen, um, and and that was that that needs to be avoided. So, how we deal with those sort of issues will become important. And I think the, finally, the other issue is that. For the majority of Australians, um, despite the fact that their total electricity is really expensive, for most of us, it actually isn't. It's a reality. And for most of us, um, the value we get from electricity far outweighs what it used to be probably when we were kids um, for the things we, do, we use electricity for um, in our lives. I mean, these days, um, all of our um, intellectual property issues that go with um, information is all associated with that. So we can't, that's important. However, what we can't do is not bring everyone along. And so the issue of how do we address the impact of energy prices on people who are not in a situation where electricity is imminently affordable remains one of the challenges. And of course, one of the ironies of this whole process is that one of the reasons why I think industry is struggling and um, the chairman of the BCA, my old boss at Origin, Grant Singh, was talking about recently is the lack of trust that the industry has suffered, not just in banking, but also in energy. And regaining that trust to be able to say, well, industry actually could be very effective at helping this. The, the, the history in the short term has been not very good. And so that's why you see governments looking to intervene on social policy issues and, enfor and enforcing mechanisms like, um, you know, some sort of default price on electricity and so forth at the retail level, which probably isn't the best way to do it. But in the absence of being able to trust big business, I think that's where you end up, um, sadly. So there's a, there is some messiness there yet. And I think there, there are several policy issues yet to be properly addressed in this, in this debate. And I think, uh, you know, it's important to, to reflect on the social equity issues. We just ran a, a forum at the ANU on social equity and the energy transformation. And, uh, you know, already it's important to recognise that there is social inequity happening right now. Uh, you know, certain sectors of society can put solar on their roofs and battery in their garage and benefit from the energy transformation. Uh, certain parts of society get completely confused uh, by the plethora of, uh, of options available to them uh, from their energy retailers. Uh, you know, this is profit through confusion, basically. 
so, uh, and then other people can take advantage of uh, technology that basically combines everything at their disposal to minimise their, their costs and to maximise their input into the grid. And a suggestion came out of this uh, workshop, which was that technology could actually come to the rescue of many of these social equity issues. So, for example, uh, there are already technological solutions that look at all your appliances in your house, monitor their usage, and give you information that you can then use to minimise your electricity bill. Now, at the moment, that information is hidden to most consumers. You know a lot about what you generate on your roof. I've got an app on my phone that tells me right now what I'm generating or what I did during the day. But I don't have an app that tells me what I use. And so there's a, a, uh, a one-way street when it comes to information that should be reversed. So imagine a world in which the computer that ran your household to do all these wonderful things also looked outwards. And it looked at the offers on the retail market for electricity, not just for off-peak and peak, but at any time of the day, dynamically varying the usage in the household, the ability to export, uh, and then to make choices about which retail offer best suited the demand profile of that household. And you wouldn't need to think about it, you wouldn't be confused, you wouldn't be left behind because of your level of education or your uh, social status or the amount of money that you could afford to spend on doing your own uh, investigations. That could address the social equity issues outright. And maybe that's something Aruna should be looking at. Technological solutions for social equity. Can I um, just add, I think in the, I agree completely, but there's another aspect here and that is the idea that the right to emit CO2 can be valued and it can be turned into a financial asset. And you could take all of Australia's emissions until 2050 and create them into permits, which you can then, don't. You, it's not a carbon tax where the revenue gets reallocated, it actually is a permit that someone buys and someone sells. You give half of all those permits to every household in Australia, so every household then can either sell the permit to the industry and get a lump sum transfer, or they can put it in their CHESS account or their superannuation fund and get an annual payment for the emissions that, that the fossil fuel generators and fossil fuel emitters produce. So you can create a financial system. It's like um, when AMP was privatised, was privatised, you basically distribute the shares in the environment. And the other half you give to industry. You give it to them. You put them on the balance sheet of the biggest greenhouse emitters and then they've got two assets to worry about. They've got their fossil fuel intensive assets and their carbon assets. And guess what? The carbon assets value will be going up as the fossil fuel intensive assets are going down and some of the biggest emitters could turn into funds managers and, and carbon <coughs> traders because they make more money out of that than they do out of emitting CO2. So you can be very creative in, in taking the environment that doesn't have a value giving it a value, a commercial value, and giving those rights to the people and to the industry. Keep it away from the politicians who allocate it to their friends or to their, to their groups of uh, special interests. Keep it away from the bureaucrats who want to use it for their next pet project. Keep it in the market. Keep it in the group in society and let that money churn around and reduce emissions more efficiently at lowest cost. That's how you solve some of these big cross-sector uh, problems, in my view. It's a different strategy completely, but you can design systems like that. And indeed, I think just as a free bit of advice to Arena, not that I'm offering free advice, but um, Arena focuses on technological solutions and uh, the transfer of that into reality and uh, the driving then of, uh, of transformation. Maybe what we should be looking now are sociological and uh, human sciences solutions 
because they will be the biggest drivers of technological change. It won't be the technology itself that's put out there on a plate. It'll be the, the economic and the social drivers that we introduce through policy. So that might have a bigger impact than uh, investment in technology in the decades to come. Next question. Yes, hello, Robert Glasser. I'm with ASPE and ANU Crawford. I'm not sure if this is a question about the narrative or about the targets or maybe both in some ways, but if we look at the key events, recent events, one is of course the defeat of the NEG, the other is the unveiling of a shorten of the labor energy policy, but a third was the release of the latest, in a sense, uh, scientific assessment, the 1.5 degrees of warming uh, special report from the IPCC, which really highlights that it's virtually impossible, it seems, to keep warming to 1.5 degrees, that two degrees will be extremely difficult. And of course, if you look at current commitments, we're on track for between two and three degrees, which the report says will have really the difference between 1.5 and 2 is exponential increase in impacts, including loss of the coral reefs at 70% of the reefs at 1.5 degrees of warming. So are we leading to a question? So, <laughs> oh, no, this is my question. It would be wonderful to hear from the panelists what, your, what you think the implications are of any from the release of that report to the arguments you're making, whether it's about narrative or uh, or targets. Thank you. A sad answer? Zero. Mm -hmm. so. That's, so the, tra the, that's the tragedy of more information doesn't help solve this problem. Yeah. In fact, I think it goes to your point before that it, there's so much information out there and um, it, it's been quite terribly conveyed to the public as to what should be listened to, what shouldn't be listened to, what are the facts, um, what is the message, what is the narrative. The, there's just so much information from all sides of the debate out there that I think it all gets lost into one big, this is too hard, from um, many people out there. You saw, you saw specifically the response of the Saudi government to that report. Oh, there's too much uncertainty in the report, we should wait another three years. <laughs> so what, what you, again, I've been involved in this since 91, and I fought quite strongly against the approach of the Kyoto Protocol, because I figured there was too much precision and it didn't deal with uncertainty, and everyone went for the targets. Now, that's, we, we've wasted 20 years. If we'd started taking actions 20 years ago, we'd have a lot lower emissions than we do today. Now, the problem I have with putting the, the targets in terms of temperatures is we actually don't know with any precision 1.5 versus 2.5. So if we're arguing about are we going for 1.5 or 2 and spend three years arguing about which temperature we're going to go for without actually coming up with any policies or any commitments or any actual tyres hitting the road to get this thing solved, you just shifted the debate from the 1996 debate to a new debate when there's no, nothing is done because people are going to argue about the temperatures and I think that is a real problem. And those temperatures were made as, they were political, they were created by politicians to take the science and summarise it in a way which was politically sellable. But that's not what the scientists think about these temperature increases. They have a different view of the scientists next to me. Um, who will agree with all the uh, previous opinion. <laughs> Hugh. Uh, Hugh Sadrom, an honorary associate of the Crawford School at ANU. I want to just, uh, go back to one of the first things that Warwick said, that, that uh, emissions from electricity, which we've mainly been talking about and most of the debates about, are, coming, are about only a third of the total and are coming down. The sector which, uh, of emissions which is growing faster and has kept on going is road transport. Yeah. And um, I, um, well, I agree 
you know, the view about pricing, but I think uh, price, uh, carbon pricing road transport, of course, is a, is a real problem. Uh, it's an incentive because there's already so much tax on it and uh, there's a lot of other... I mean, I think this is a challenge, uh, um, and this is my question, to say that just a, a price and not much else, I, I see that you're really going to need some rather specific uh, mechanisms like a few, maybe fuel economy standards, road user pricing and an array of other things. I just wondered what the panel thinks about what we should be doing about road transport emissions. Yeah, because on extrapolation, they'll be the biggest source of emissions. With, with so Hugh, I didn't say that the carbon price was the answer to every, no, anything. No, it's a platform in which you have to build a whole range of policies on top of. Now, now one solution to, to that is to put up the price of, of carbon, or you don't <coughs> change the price of carbon, and we move to electrification of the road transport network, and we generate that electricity using coal, because there is no incentive for anyone other to use, than other using coal, then you're making emissions far worse. So you've got to have a carbon pricing framework where when you're thinking about electrification of the fleet, that in fact it's going to be very expensive to run this off, off coal. It's going to be secondly expensive to run it off oil or gas. And actually, if you can somehow use renewables and batteries, it's going to be a lot cheaper. But you need the economic incentives to make those decisions. And then you can overlay it with, with other standards if you like. But really, if you haven't got that fundamental difference in the price between these different choices, people will make the cheapest choices. And so I think you need to have in the system uh, a reasonably high and rising carbon price, and then that'll do most. I, I'm optimistic it'll do most of the work, and if it doesn't, you can overlay it with regulatory intervention. Um, again, the US oil, the US oil of, um, revolution, I think, is a good example. The sulfur dioxide trading mechanism in northeastern US was a great example. We don't know how people will respond, but there's enough examples that they do that it's worth making that the foundation and then building on it. Yep, question here. Um, Andrew Campbell. Um, this, uh, there's been a lot of focus on the cost of a various abatement options. Not much debate about the cost of doing nothing. Mm -hmm. We've just got a scenario now. Um, uh, many years ago, I was a forester involved in fighting fires, and we could save a lot of money by sharing our firefighting aircraft with the Americans. They use them in the winter and we use them in the summer. We can't do that anymore. They're still in California now. They should have been in Australia already. And the cost is astronomical, the costs on the reef. Uh, so we need a mature debate about the cost to the economy and the cost of Australia not being at the front of this. If we took the same attitude to litter or other forms of pollution, of waiting for the rest of the world to do stuff, we'd be in a very different situation. So how do we get a more mature economic debate around this that looks at all the costs on both sides, uh, not just of doing stuff, but of not doing stuff, when a big chunk of the press is still giving uh, overdue prominence to denial? So I'd say that, uh, you know, these costs of doing nothing have been well articulated. The Stern report is an example. Uh, the recent report that was done by the United States government and given to Donald Trump is yet another example of articulating the costs of doing nothing. Uh, so these costs are well understood. Uh, and it's always the case that the cost of doing something to reverse the damaging effects of climate change is always cheaper. So no one has an argument with that. I don't believe any economist would argue otherwise. No, but the problem is, the problem you face is the reality that if Australia does, does nothing or does something, it doesn't change the costs at the global level. 
That's the key problem we have. We have to convince politicians that is the case. I mean, we could eliminate Australia and, and the costs of climate change will continue to be what they are. So what we have to do is make the argument that it's in our interest to design policies which will reduce our emissions and which other countries will adopt to reduce their emissions because they've discovered by looking at Australia, a fossil fuel intensive economy that has come up with a mechanism that gets massive reductions at low cost, they can do it in their economies and therefore the whole world does it together. But there's this free rider problem. And it's a reality. You can't win the political debate in Australia that we should do something because the reality is our, on, the, on, the, on the benefit side because what we do has no benefit unless we change other countries' behaviour. And indeed, I'd suggest that you know, it's not just a matter of Australia being a small player uh, in terms of emissions. Australia is an enormous player in terms of energy. We export 10 times more energy than we consume of order. Uh, and we are a major player in coal, in gas and in uranium. So we are an energy superpower. We have the capability of turning that into future export earnings by moving away from the fossil fuel component, coal and gas, into renewables. And we have at the ANU just very recently uh, been given $10 million by the university to undertake a grand challenge, which is to create zero carbon energy for the Asia Pacific, which will drive the majority of growth over the next few decades in the world's energy systems. Uh, so Australia can transform the way it trades with the world from being carbon intensive to carbon free. And we can make an enormous difference, not just to our own uh, balance of payments, but also to contribute to the world's emissions reductions in that process. So let's not think of Australia just in terms of its small percentage of emissions contributing to global warming. Let's look at this as an opportunity to turn our trading systems around and make money from it. Coming back to your, the heart of your question, though, I think is that it, there are a number of elements to this area where it is no, at the moment it's not possible to have a mature debate. And the reason is because you can't debate something with somebody whose self-interests are served by not having the debate. That's where we are. And so they won't. And so therefore, the, the, that's, and the reason I say that is because it comes back to my point about the self-interests of directors of public companies who may very well on legal advice be held legally liable, that's when you get their attention. Question at the back. I have a, a segue question to that immediate point. If you can identify yourself, Ian. Thank you, Ken. Um, <laughs> Colonel Ian Cumming, Defence Climate and Security Advisor. If you could apply the same fiduciary duties that you've just described to the public sector, would that shape the policy environment? To the, to the public sector? I think to politicians. Can I get a clarification? Politicians? <laughs> my, my brain is hurting. Um, <laughs> can I get a qualification? So you're saying change the incentives of public servants in, in a sense of the, the incentives that face directors? The that principle of any good lawyer is to ask the question knowing full well what the answer should be. So if we looked at the PGPA Act, there's a requirement for every civil servant, every senior public leader to actually take due diligence of the decisions they make, which is almost exactly the same as the fiduciary duties of a company director. Why are we not at the position where our leadership is making decisions consistent with that of company directors now under the TCFD? Interesting question. Yeah, I don't know the answer yeah. to it. I'm not sufficiently across the regulatory side of things. However, uh, as Tony pointed out earlier, company directors are now facing uh, the due diligence that is required of them to have a 
plan going forward for addressing their emissions profile. And shareholders are expecting that. So it uh, is, I think, you know, behoven upon the leadership of this country to face uh, a similar um, uh, glare of the public light on, on their decision-making processes with the same outcomes in mind. And, uh, you know, in terms of politics, the election is the point at which they're judged. Uh, I don't think you could apply the same blowtorch to public servants because they're doing the bidding of the government. But nonetheless, uh, I take your point that if company directors need to report to their shareholders on this, then politicians need to report to their shareholders as well. It has been difficult for um, our bureaucrats to give robust advice to ministers hmm. on some of these issues, I would suggest. And I'm not sure how you would change that in our current um, system. You could, I mean, you could force ministers' superannuation funds to be invested in the decisions <laughs> that they make. <laughs> so for example, there are people idea. who made a decision on the NBN, they should be holding shares in the NBN as their retirement. <laughs> and people that are supporting certain types of industries should be holding shares in those industries. And if they cease to exist, then the superannuation funds of those uh, politicians ceases to exist at the same time. <laughs> but I'm just suggesting that. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, then we might have fibre to the home. Uh, let's uh, move to one final questioner over here. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Lydia and I'm an undergrad student at the ANU. Um, my question is a lot more general. Great choice, Leah. <laughs> um, thank you. My question is a lot more general than um, what has come before, but I think from this discussion, I've I don't know, there, there's been quite a lot of disillusionment on my part um, because we can't seem to come to consensus, not just amongst politicians, but between industry and, and um, the public sector, you know, individuals, there's just a lot of conflict of interest. And um, as you're more than well aware, um, climate change is a very time sensitive issue. And um, by, like, by, as the months go on, it seems as the, pro the projections get more and more serious. And so my question is, who, um, who, who has the most potent, I guess, like weapon or like the most potent vehicle to get um, this sort of solution going? Or if there is a solution, who, you know, like what needs to happen for something to happen, if that makes sense? Well, I would say that the electorate has the, yeah, the strongest agree. voice um, and come the next federal election or state elections, uh, they will, they will uh, I think climate change and energy policy and broader climate change policy will be a big issue at the election and the electors will go to the ballot box and have their say on it. I think they've got the, uh, the most important say on the matter. So I'd say you need two things. You need a good idea, a good policy idea, and you need a leader. And if someone can lead and actually explain why this is a good idea and implement it, that's the key ingredient. And we haven't had that for a very long time. I've had good ideas, sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't dump on my own ideas, but we haven't <laughs> had good leaders. <laughs> yeah, I think the, um, you know, the two of the things that are happening now, many people thought this was a, a boiling frog problem. Um, the problem is the water's getting hot now. <laughs> um, we thought it was going to get hot, not for some time yet. Um, and the second thing is that it is the classic economist thing of the, the tragedy of the commons where you know, it's in everybody's self-interest not to do anything for a while yet. And so that leads you to the conclusion that things have to get worse before they even have any chance of really being adopted. And so, you know, the, the sort of things that was referred to in relation to bushfires before has to happen more and more uh, in more countries and so forth, which is a terrible outcome if that's what we have to achieve. However, on the positive side, I think I, st I actually think we're in a position where, despite some of the 
the silliness, and I mean childish silliness of the last 10 years, um, we may very well get through this. And I don't, know, and I don't necessarily yet see um, the leadership that Warwick's talking about coming from um, someone like Bill Shorten, for example, but it may. Um, at one stage, I thought, you know, many people thought Kevin Rudd might actually be able to do that. He didn't. Um, and equally, uh, that's why I think many people were behind Malcolm Turnbull for the same reason, and he didn't. Um, so we now, live in, we now live in some expectation that someone else may emerge from this to not only combine the policy mechanisms, but also that narrative um, to bring, because I think people will adopt it, and they are, you know, most people are seeing what's going on, and I think the majority of people um, do see action on climate change, um, but equally action on, uh, on our energy systems broadly, because remember, we talk about electricity, but energy is responsible for something more closer to 80, uh, more than 80% of our emissions. So I mean, it, is a, it is an energy problem as much as it is an electricity problem. So I, I don't, I don't, you know, my final comment tonight is I'm much more optimistic um, right now than I was um, uh, at the beginning of this year. And I think, Leo, that uh, it's interesting if you look back at the recent Wentworth by-election and the polling that was done after the fact, not before the fact. Uh, and the polling shows that uh, the issue that was at the forefront of most people's minds when they came to vote was energy and climate policy at the top and then daylight between that and just about everything else, including education, health, refugees, etc., etc. And interesting enough, the week after that, I went to Sydney to uh, Prince's birthday party in the electorate of Wentworth. And I talked to a lot of people there, many of whom were dyed-in-the-wool Liberal voters. And their number one priority was the same. And uh, unless the coalition comes up with a policy between now and the election, I think the electorate will, as we've just said, uh, judge them uh, in, uh, in a very uh, serious way. Uh, that may mean that, uh, that we see a complete wipeout unless there is some attempt to have at least a, uh, an initial bipartisan approach to solving this enormous conundrum that has really plagued us for the last decade. So I think the most powerful weapon is the ballot box. And I think the other one is, I should have said, the second last thing I was gonna say, this is the last one. <laughs> and, that is, and that is the, the survey was done um, for, for the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Now these people represent all companies, not just the biggest companies, not just um, the members of the BCA, but everybody else. This is, and these are across the entire economy. The highest priority issue that they thought needed to be addressed in the short term amongst all the other issues was energy the second the highest priority issue amongst all the other issues in the long term was climate change mm. there is a powerful um, group who could i think with the right political leadership make a big influence as well as the voters so on that note, I think we might wrap things up. Uh, I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank the Grattan Institute, Tony and Megan. Thank you very much. Uh, and I'd also like to uh, thank our panellists, uh, Jess and Warwick, for their contributions. So thank you all. We have uh, maybe an opportunity to have a quick chat afterwards uh, before we uh, have to leave the building. Uh, but thank you once again, and we look forward to seeing you at yet another Grattan and ANU public policy evening. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy. 
with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.